Hello there, risk takers, risk lassoers, risk acceptors. I am Brooke Warner, and I am one third of the team who puts on this show each week because I'm here as always with my co-host Grant Faulkner. And behind the scenes is our producer, Jeremy Brisky, who never gets enough praise. So I do want to give a shout out and say thank you to Jeremy today. Uh, and in case my intro was too subtle, we are talking about risking today. And, you know, we did a show a while back, Grant, about creative risk taking with Rebecca Roanhorse. Uh, and today, we're going to be talking about risking on the publishing side of things. And our guest is an old friend of mine, Angela Engel, who has been in the industry as long as I have. Uh, she recently, well, not super recently, three years ago, started her own publishing company, The Collective Book Studio. And of course, that's a risk all its own to start a company. And I do want to talk during our conversation, Grant, about the risk involved in going after your publishing dreams. Uh, because one thing is the dream itself you know, which honestly feels risky always to think it, to imagine it, and then pursuing your publishing dreams after the writing of the book brings up so much more for people. You know, it's a process about putting your book out into the world, the emotions that you put on the line. Uh, so Grant, you're a person who has published a lot of books at this point in your life. You've been around in publishing for a while. You connect with a lot of authors and kind of live this life of, of this writerly life. But I want to beckon you back to the earliest days, you know, to when you had that very first book project that you sold and remind us when that would have been. <laughs> and, and how was that experience? And what about that felt risky to you at the time? Maybe that doesn't hold the same exact risk today, you know, now that you've been at this for a while. Yeah, I think there's always a risk. It's interesting, but the risk does diminish with experience, which is good. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a weird story in that I'd, I'd published a lot of short stories and articles over the years, but I didn't publish my first book until somewhat recently. It was 2015 when I published Fissures, my collection of 100-word stories. Uh, so I was well along uh, before, you know, as in my writing life was well along before I published. But you know, like I said, it's it's always feels like a risk. You're putting yourself out in the world and you're just vulnerable. You're exposing yourself. You don't, especially that first book, you just don't know how people are going to react. Um, there's a lot of it that feels like going out on a stage and having a whole crowd of people, you know, just stare at you. That is what it is like. <laughs> um, I mean, sometimes I think it's like having a, a raunchy stand-up comedy routine, but you're performing it in a church and everyone in the church is a church lady. Terrible image. <laughs> it's a terrible <laughs> image. There are a lot of terrible images to having your book come out. It's frightening. And, you know, it's a little bit like, I, I think, um, it's a little bit like that common dream people have where they've gone to school and they suddenly realize, oops, they forgot to put on their clothes, you know, because you are laying yourself bare. But the, the redeeming thing about it is that those are all just scary images that I think most of us uh, project. And I've, I've never really heard, I guess, of, of people. I mean, I know that people's work is received, you know. Poorly, and sometimes I think the worst thing is just feeling misperceived or misunderstood, and that's a, that's another risk. But what I was pleased by is just you know these very interesting moments where somebody from deep in my past who I hadn't had contact with in years and years, and they somehow found out about my book and bought it and wrote me about it and told me how it was meaningful to them. And you know, if you get one email like that, it just it just redeems all of the risk you took. You know, I need I don't need a thousand or ten thousand readers. You know, that one reader made it worth it all. Yeah, I love that. And you're also speaking to the journey, right? That the risk taking is worth it. It's completely terrifying, but at the end there's all of these positive things that come out of it. 
And I remember you sharing the worst piece of writing advice you ever got. We were together at the Mendocino Writers Conference a few years ago. Actually, it must have been like eight or nine years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I still remember that you shared that the worst piece of advice you ever got was to figure out what was selling and then to write like those authors. (laughs) And of course, you know, you didn't follow that path. I actually didn't realize that your first book was published in 2015. I thought you had published earlier, but it must have been because of all of those short stories and other things you've been writing for years. Um, But I'm curious about, you know, if not following that advice even felt risky, you know, Mm -hmm. like, here's this thing that is like, maybe surefire, uh, though, of course, we know better that that's not true. But do you think that your young self imagined that that could have been a way to break in? And now that you have the benefit of hindsight, do you think there's anything you might have done differently in your career? You know, if you had been assured, like some, if there was assurance of some level of publishing success? Yeah, this is such a fascinating question. And and just for listeners' sake, the bad advice I received was from a friend of my parents who uh, – I was 22 when I decided I wanted to be a writer, and he was very concerned about my likely financial demise. <laughs> and he took me aside and said uh, – and he, he was not a writer. He was a doctor. This is the other thing you learn about uh, as a writer is that a lot of non-writers feel like they need to give you advice. <laughs> I didn't yeah. give him any doctoring advice. But anyway, he, he advised me to study the best-selling novels – out there and study what they did and then repeat it, you know, and, and in some ways that's not bad advice, you know, to study those who've been successful. Uh, but I was actually repelled by it because I didn't want to make a widget or a product. I didn't want to commodify my writing. I wanted to express myself and to break the rules, not follow them and to tell my truth. But that's a question because it's always a trade-off when it comes to publishing your writing about the balance you want to strike to get published and the balance you need to strike to to tell your truth. And I'm actually still dealing with that. You know, I think if you write outside of the conventions, which I often do, it's just going to be harder to get published and you're going to probably need to get published with a small press or, or, um, an indie press, uh, some, some other type of press. So, but you know, when, in the end, I think if I judged success by the number of books published and the number sold, I probably would have done better following his advice or some variation of it. But in the end, back to that, you know, initial premise of why I became a writer, uh, I know I'm happier because I'm honoring my truth. Yeah, it just can be so, so difficult as an author to trust yourself on these topics. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I, I, like, even as, yeah, I know, (laughs) like, even as you're talking, you're like, well, this and this, this." I mean, it's only the benefit of hindsight that you're like, okay, yes. I mean, the one thing you have is the following your truth, you know, so there's integrity in the process. Uh, But, you know, all writers face risks and, and, and then more so now because of thinking about all the various different publishing paths that exist. You know, it's not just, oh, okay, I'm going to write the book. Like now there's financial risk for so many authors, you know, who are pursuing a non-traditional publishing path. And that's often after they've faced a fair amount of rejection by the traditional industry. So sometimes they're entering into this new venture with all that hard experience behind them and it can fuel their doubt. Um, You know, so I just feel really privileged in my work with She Writes Press and Spark Press authors because, you know, I'm talking to writers nearly every day and all of them are risking on themselves, you know, and and it is this, you know, taking your risk on yourself. You have to grow into that. And it's really hard to see how risky it is or what the payoff is until many years down the road. Yeah, it, it, it is. And you, you just never know how that risk is going to play out because sometimes I like to think that something that is different is going to 
be the thing that breaks through instead of writing something that's the same. And so I think that that's where you really have to judge, you know, what, what is the value of that truth and how do you want to express it? But I think in the end, you have to, you can't waver, you know, kind of what you were saying, Brooke, that you, you do have to bet on yourself and, and maybe double down on that bet and go for it, uh, whichever direction you see being successful. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious on that note, Brooke, uh, what are some of the quality you see in authors who sign with you? And do you see every author, you know, having, you know, their tolerance for risk-taking? Because uh, I think, you know, as we've said, risk-taking is inherent in the act of just even writing a book in the first place. I mean, I think there is a tolerance for risk in, in moving toward a non-traditional route, right? And so since I'm in a non-traditional publishing company and our guest today, Angela Engel, is also working in a non-traditional space, right? It's like there's there's a lot that goes into it. You become entrepreneurial, you know, and you're putting yourself out there in a very different way. And the risk, I mean, it's interesting because when we talk to Angela and she closes and talking about her own book and the project that she wants to do, she w immediately went to the financial risk. And I think that mm. that that is, uh, you know, certainly something that comes up for people. There's all these layers of risk. You know, there's the layer of risk of exposing yourself and putting your work out there and is it as good as someone else's. And then with so many indie published authors now, there's this level of financial risk. And then if that doesn't pay off, that can feel really difficult. So I don't know. I've spoken a million times about what an empowering experience it can be too, of course, you know, and in my TEDx talk, I specifically talked about the idea of giving up one dream to make room for the new dream, because that's what I see authors needing to do, you know, but what's not acknowledged there often enough is that in order to do that, there's risk involved, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so to claim that new path as something that you truly want with all your heart, it can feel embarrassing to desire or to want or yearn for a specific outcome um, and then to shift gears, you know. So this whole endeavor of becoming a published author is actually quite emotional. Um, and I think a lot of folks can get paralyzed along the way because they've had preconceived notions about how their journey is supposed to look. And then if it looks different, that can take some big adjustment. Yeah. So, but again, you know, I'll just kind of go back to the same thing that those risks are are tough, but in my experience, people who do it, you know, they take the risk, they publish the book, they have it and they never look back. Yeah. I, I don't think I've ever met an author who regretted publishing a book. And I, and I don't think I've ever met, even met an author who regretted writing a book that didn't get published, even if it took years of time. I mean, this is always a question with me because I've written plenty that didn't get published. And, mm -hmm. and, and that, that's because, you know, you, you respect yourself in the end for taking the chance and you have to take the chance because it is about writing your truth in, in most cases, I think. And, you know, the same goes for people who do things that are even, I don't know, riskier in terms of, of outright public embarrassment. You know, I oftentimes think about what it takes to be a stand-up comedian, you know, uh, just to get up on stage and give it a shot. But I think, you know, once people have done that and once it's done, it's done and you're proud of yourself for giving it your best shot and having that experience, even if you didn't, you know, rock it. Yeah. And I mean, I obviously agree. And I've been watching Welcome to Earth on Disney Plus. I'm sure a lot of people have seen it. It's hosted by Will Smith. And it's a great show to watch with kids. Um, and in one of the earlier episodes, he shares how his grandma told him that everything good in life is on the other side of fear. And I just adore that because we can get so caught in our fears and they can cause us not to act, not to grow. And then we're in stagnation 
And then we never know what we would have become, you know, what the possibilities might have been. And it resonates with me because I'm in this major growth movement in my own business. You know, I've been, I was just facing a lot of fear. I think it was the pandemic and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, it's been uh, 10 years. We're celebrating the 10 years of She Writes Press this year. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's just this big moment, you know, and I, there was just these, uh, back in September, I was facing what I could probably best describe as a plateau, but there was paralysis associated with that. And that gave me some fear. And so I started a mastermind group. And these women that I'm working with have been amazing, both in accountability, you know, holding me, pushing me. And it's been you know, two things like really amazing, but also terrifying. And every time I feel scared, I've started to reframe it as agitation, you know, like a positive tension. And I think back to Will's grandma's advice, you know, that on the other side, good things are coming. (laughs) And it reminds me to feel the tension, you know, to be patient and stay the course. And so that was just a little something I wanted to share about risk taking and that it is really scary, but that we also thrive as human beings when we risk. Yeah, can we get Will Smith's grandmother on the podcast? Um, <laughs> From heaven, dial in. <laughs> yeah. Has she copyrighted that phrase? I, I want to make it into a T-shirt. Everything good in life is on the other side of fear. That's so good to remember. You know, I want to print out flyers of it and hand it out on the street corner because it's it's just so absolutely true. And and um, you know, it's 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 the advice I wish I would have gotten when I was a younger writer because that's that's worth thinking about every time we sit down to write. I can't wait to talk about all this more with Angela after this short, unrisky break. Welcome back, everyone. Today's guest is Angela Angle, and Angela is an entrepreneur and book publishing expert with over 20 years of experience in the publishing industry. After working for 20 years in the industry and with major publishing companies, including Chronicle Books, 10 Speed Press, Cameron and Company, Dwell Studio, and Moleskin, Angela is on a mission to disrupt the publishing industry by giving budding authors more agency and authority in the publishing process. And she is the founder and publisher of the Collective Book Studio, where she provides authors the support they need to get a book out into the world. Welcome, Angela. Hi, good morning. So you and I go way back, like almost to the beginning of my publishing career. We've been doing this about uh, the same amount of time. You worked for a distributor uh, and for the company that I worked for at the time. And then later we rented office space in the building where I worked. (laughs) Uh, And so we have both been at this Bay Area publishing thing for a really long time. And so I always like to give our listeners that context because it's a special treat for me to have a friend and a longtime colleague on. We really do go way back, Brooke. Uh, you were at my wedding. <laughs> There's that. <laughs> I was. Yeah. And let's start with what you're doing now. You're the founder and publisher of the Collective Book Studio, and you've had a hand in playing a disruptive role in the industry, as your bio says. So tell us what about your publishing company makes it disruptive? a really good question. Um, What makes it disruptive? I think there's several elements. Uh, Let's start with um, intellectual property. Let's start with that. So um, my contracts to my clients, uh, I don't own their IP for life. Um, I do anything between five and 10 years. And so in some ways, it's I kind of consider it almost licensing, right? I'm licensing the work and using it then into the trade that way. So that's one major difference. 
I think. And then also that's only per project. I'm not asking my clients, um, like if there's no contingency on another work. They also own the characters. If they want to do a short film, if they want to make t-shirts. I really do believe that in an entrepreneurial life and in this day and age, the artist or the writer, the thinker, they deserve those rights. So I think that that's a really different difference. Um, and in order to do that, I'm asking the creator to pay into the project with me to develop the P&L, the budgets, and let's really strongly look at them because I don't want to be known as a publisher, an independent publisher that has no money for marketing support for my authors. I think that really is distinctive. I'm willing, I'm, I'm there, I'm playing the game, but I want to play the game completely differently uh, with the traditional houses. Well, Angelina, before you came on, Brooke and I were talking about risk. And I think uh, the name of our show, instead of right-minded, it could be risk-minded because writing and publishing is a, is, <laughs> is so risky. And you took a huge risk uh, when you started your new publishing venture, which um, was, was, what, just soon before COVID struck, I believe. And I know you sometimes take on various publishing costs on projects that a lot of hybrid companies don't bear. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role risk plays in your business life and what advice you have for writers and authors about risk taking. Oh, I love this, Grant. I've actually never been asked that. Um, and I really appreciate that you're really looking at my business model holistically because, yes, I own inventory. <laughs> and I own inventory on gorgeous, huge books that cost a lot of money to print. So that's a risk, right? As a woman entrepreneur, there's no VC, there's no angel investor money here. But what I can say is developing product into the market is a risk. No matter if you are uh, a publisher or if you are creating the latest scarf line that you think would be the best thing for Nordstrom's, creating product into the market is a risk. And I view my background in over 20 years in marketing, business development, and sales as somebody who at least has calculated risk in developing product. And I view the book as an art form and I view the book as a, a product. Um, and I think that that is also what really differentiates the collective book studio from other, honestly, hybrids, as well as Amazon publishing. I'm not looking at it that way when I develop a book. I'm looking at it at the way of what retailer are we serving? What market are we serving when we develop this book? But there's ultimately risk involved. I mean, I have a title right now on my list called B is for Bagel. It's adorable. It's a kid's title. I own the inventory. So how did I mitigate that? We ran a Kickstarter campaign. We raised $10,000 on Kickstarter. So at least, you know, the risk of the overhead to develop the book um, is not there. Instead, it's now on uh, the inventory. And so I, I think I have an eye and I think I have the team. I think, you know, we're going to develop we're going to develop wins that, um, and we're going to figure out every single project, how to alleviate that risk, whether that's through a Kickstarter or crowdfunding, personal financing, whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, you guys are doing a lot of creative things and, um, you got into publishing on the sales side of things. And I came in on the editorial side. So we have this very different orientation. Um, and people outside of publishing don't 
often understand just how siloed these spaces are and how if you have experience in one area that that really drives your sensibilities. And so your sales focus is clearly visible in how you're operating the collective book studio. So I was curious if you could talk to the listeners a little bit more about this orientation to your work and the way in which that sets you guys apart. Yeah, totally. So There's a part of me that honestly believes the only people that can truly disrupt an industry are insiders. So the Collective Book Studio are insiders. Why are we even called the Collective Book Studio is that we are a collective of people within the industry that have come together to create books in a time that I think is absolutely necessary. People do not want to wait three years to get their book published. They just don't. And they don't have to anymore with all of the platforms that are out there, including, you know, a blurb or a Lulu, reputable hybrid companies to do some work that's color, but they definitely don't have distribution. And so, and they also, the difference is those are outsiders. They're tech companies coming in saying, here's a platform to become published. What I'm saying is, hmm, no. The only people that can truly develop an art form like a book are insiders. And just so if that makes sense, Brooke, what my company does is when we get a manuscript, we think about it holistically from both from an editorial side, from a sales side, from a marketing side. Uh, and so we're really selective on our submissions. We really make sure that it works for us, which is children's lifestyle that encompasses cooking, entertaining, home organizing. I love to dive into nonfiction, um, career development. But if I don't see a trade audience, it's not the right book for us. Because for us, we need to think that we can sell at least 4,000 units, and that's offset printing, um, just like a traditional publisher would for us to make any money as as a company since we give a lot back in our uh, staff and our time in marketing support. Well, Angela, I wanted to talk about language or, or labels a bit with you because I, I know you might prefer the term partnership publishing to hybrid publishing. And, and Brooke told me that the two of you have joked about traditional publishing being the real vanity publishing because of their, you know, celebrity orientation, like What's more vanity than paying an already wealthy celebrity or wife of a celebrity millions of dollars for a lifestyle book? And I'm curious also, what what, what do you think uh, it is about book publishing that makes it so unlike things like music or film and other art mediums where, where the very notion of self-financing is applauded, but you know, in book publishing, it's often stigmatized. Mm. So why is publishing so um, inherently you know, all about upholding this elitist paradigm? Ah, this is such a good question. Um, So let me break this down first with the idea of vanity publishing. Um, I mean, I, I, I throw that word even out of the window now. I mean, it's just ridiculous to me. I was, when I first launched the Collective Book Studio, which is over three years ago, I was asked by a good friend who is now at Random House high up and said, well, Angela, I hear what you're going to be doing, but everyone's going to think that's vanity. (laughs) And I said on the call, I said, "Uh, excuse me, actually what random house is doing is vanity. I literally, and then I said, I said, can you, can you not, I mean, come on, can you not 
agree with that one. And she laughed and said, you're right, Angela, in some kind of way, probably not said you're right, but was laughing and said she saw my point. And so to, to talk about labels, I want to start with why I, I call myself partnership publishing and not hybrid. I say I'm partnership publishing, I use hybrid contracts, just like the big houses. And so in some way, I'm an independent publisher because hybrid contracts have been in independent publishing. And honestly, in the big five, Simon & Schuster has an entire line of uh, of custom publishing. Abrams, with with all the museum work and the artist and the, and the fine artists that they do, that whole line is custom publishing. So this is not new to publishing. And Brooke, you and I have talked about this also. Hybrid contracts have been with uh, in publishing since I've I've been there uh, and probably longer over twenty plus years, and so all I'm doing is saying, hey, not only can big networks like Food Network get a publishing deal because the Food Network is paying for some of those books that are on traditional publishing list, if the publisher does not believe in it, does not see the market, the network can pay the publisher to do it, and then once it's shown any kind of success, the publisher might decide to publish the next book from that TV show. But what is the difference between a young budding debut author saying, I believe in my work, or an older author who has never been published, which I do have quite a few of them that don't have a TikTok platform, right? And they can't get a publishing deal. Um, I, I publish a very successfully into some people who are older who have been traditionally published and who have been dropped by their agents and their publishing houses. And so what I can say is this, that this idea of labels, I think needs to actually get thrown out of out the window and instead really talk about what makes a great book. Because my concern and why I don't call myself hybrid is because there's a lot, and Brooke, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. There's a lot of outsiders, tech companies, becoming hybrid services, claiming that they're publishers to capitalize on Amazon publishing. And that's why I don't call myself hybrid is because I've decided, you know what, this is not about competing. This is not about comparing. I'm, I'm going my own way. Yeah. I mean, I love what you're doing, Angela. And it's like, you know, w there's so much intersection and such good conversation here and a lot, lots of overlap and lots of points of distinction between our two companies, of course. And like, I, I think part of the problem with labels is that they get co-opted. You know, we, the, the hybrid works really well for She Writes and Spark Press, for instance, but then it's a label that because it's become popular, you're right. All these service providers come and say, oh, we're hybrid. And in fact, they're not by the definition of hybrid hybrid. And so the issue all over the place is that labels create all kinds of problems. So I think the main thing that you and I are both doing with the disruption is just leveling the playing field and calling bullshit on some of the exact elitism that Grant was speaking to, you know, just saying to the industry, like, no more of that, please. It, yes, I was actually, it's interesting. I was, I was asked yesterday, have you always been a rebel? <laughs> I love that. You're like, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I, I have. I said, even as a kid, and I was joking about the fact that, you know, I, I actually had to go to, I'm, I'm 
had to go to an Orthodox synagogue and I'm far from an, from Orthodox Jew and there's nothing to say to that. But I was like, oh, maybe I'm going to wear my, you know, very cool modern pantsuit, my little hat, my Ruth Bader Ginsburg earrings. And my oldest was like, mom, can we tone down the feminism? And <laughs> and then my little five-year-old says to, says to me, why can't we sit uh, by Abba, by her dad? And I said, the patriarchy. That's what came out of my mouth. And I sort of, when I laughed, when this person asked, have you always been a rebel? And I go, I guess I really have. And so I'm not surprised even by my answer to my five-year-old when she can't sit by her dad and she's looking at her mom going, what is she talking about? I'm like, let's break down the patriarchy. I'm like, let's break. And I'm saying that let's break down even that within publishing. You know, we could talk about that for a very long time because a lot of my authors are women. A lot of my subjects have to do with birth, motherhood, those types of things. And so, and or they're older. So I think that there's a lot to be said about women also running publishing companies, Brooke. I mean, if I, if, I mean, I don't know if I totally answered the question or I went on a complete tangent here, but, you know, I think that it's, there's a reason I'm doing what I'm doing right now. Well, I think you're putting your finger on why you would gravitate toward something more disruptive rather than just saying, hey, I'm going to start a traditional publishing company because there is something inherently patriarchal about the traditional publishing giants that have been around and they're wanting the industry to look the way that it looked in the 1940s and 50s and they don't want people like us in the industry disrupting, you know, it's create it creates problems. There are more books, you know, the rules aren't the same as they always have been. And so, you know, when I listen to I'm like, Oh, we're exactly where we're supposed to be. So I I love (laughs) it and completely see it that way. So thank you for the reframe. I wanted to hearken back, you know, a BEA, a book expo from a long time ago, you and I went together, I think it was 2000 two or 2003 when we went to Washington, D.C., which was like the only time Book Expo was ever at um, in D.C. And I was working for North Atlantic. I can't remember. I think you were working for a journal publisher at the time. And I was laughing about just some of the things we've talked about over the years, you know, that I have always worked toward these like very content heavy books. So I was probably working on some thousand page tome for North Atlantic. (laughs) And you were working on, you know, some gorgeous book, you know, with like lots of aesthetics. You love spot gloss and foil and embossing and four color projects with beautiful design. And your books are so gorgeous. So I just wanted to ask you about your orientation toward books as aesthetic objects. And I'm curious if that started for you as a, at a young age, you know, if you always loved the tactile and visual aspect of books, or did this really begin when you got your start in the industry? Oh, gosh, you guys have such good questions. And Brooke, when you were talking about this, as I'm hearing you talk about my love for foil and embossing, <laughs> you know, I, I thought about two things. I thought about first came to mind, um, I'm a comparative literature major uh, with a minor in creative writing. I've never written a book myself, but I fell in love with a book in college. I'm from the University of Oregon by Alberto Manguel, The History of Reading. He's an Argentinian writer. And in the book, he's talking about the history of reading, right? So we started off painting on, on caves and we have the scroll and then we came to the bound book. And then he keeps going. And there's a moment in the book where he talks about the cover. 
and you're sitting at a coffee shop and you fall in love. Uh, he's like, in this particular book, he's talking about, I, you know, you fall in love with your girlfriend over the, at this coffee shop and you spill the coffee all over the cover. And you notice that it's not just about the cover or what's inside. It's about the entire experience you're having at that moment with the book. When I read that in college, I knew right then and there I wanted to be in publishing. I like was like, this magic of creation of book, this magic that the book is something that you treasure, you actually keep on your bookshelf and you laugh when you pull it out and you reread it and you notice that coffee stain and you notice that cover, that to me, and that becomes what I kind of want to transcend in my own thought, in the own publishing world that I that I exist in, as well as my own brand for my authors. I want the book to be seen as something a child picks up, they fall in love with the illustrations, they fall in love with the way that my 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 star PW, my debut children's book got a star PW, Little Loon. The cover has this loon that's embossed and you feel it. So I'm hoping that that child, which the loon is an endangered species, when they're in Minnesota looking at those lakes and they see that loon and they come back, this is... This is the book that I hope that they keep in their memory and on their bookshelf as though they would, you know, the little engine that could, you know, I mean, those are the types of books that stay with us, but not just because of what's inside, because of the entire package. And so I thought of that book as well as one other thing. When I was in third grade, I thought I wanted to be a writer. (laughs) I'm not a writer (laughs) uh, at all. And why? Because I loved Charlotte's Web. I loved that book. I loved the illustrations. It was not just the words. It was like looking at the way the sketches were. So again, I think I've always looked at a book and always loved it for its entirety. And that's what I look at. I don't, I look at it not just for the words. And I think I love, Brooke, that you said you're working on tomes. I don't work on tomes, right? I'm like, oh, this thing is going to be over 300 pages. I don't know if we can do this one. Unless it's like just, you know, a beautiful art uh, tome. Um, that's a lot of words. Like anything over 60,000 words, you know, I'm like, oh, how many pages is this going to be? What's the copy <laughs> editing cost going to cost? But, but uh, in all seriousness, I mean, I'd love to know Grant and Brooke, what, what I'm saying, do you have a favorite that where you can really say, wow, yeah, what she's talking about is like, I would never give this book up. And it could be as simple as, honestly, my Toni Morrison Song of Solomon that I read in college and fell in love with, I will never give that copy up. There's like, it's pages are torn. Things are, there's such a delight in the package now for me that I hope you know, when I'm 90 plus to give it off to one of my grandchildren and say, just keep Song of Solomon for me. This is my copy. I mean, I love what you're saying. And I'm sure every listener out there can imagine that book. And and I think the other thing is like the more earmarked, the more read, the more history, the more proud you are of that artifact. You know, it's like you've carried it around and you've marked it up. And, you know, I definitely have a handful of books like that, that I agree with you would totally be passing down to my grandchildren because they're so meaningful. So I I totally love that. And I have some books like that from my own grandmother, actually. So, um, so yes, I'm with you. 
Yeah, I love the the way you articulated that and the passion you articulated your views with, because I think reading does become a, a sacred experience in a way. Um, and it is kind of mystical, just the way we carry this book throughout a lifetime, you know, and it passes through multiple readings and it reminds us of different places we read it and and the look and feel it, it does like uh, intermingle with the, the reading experience in the text itself. So thank you so much for, for uh, approaching books like that. In, in closing, I wanted to return to risk because that's our theme of the show. And I was wondering if you could tell us about one big or significant future risk you're taking or hoping to take. Maybe writing that book that based on Charlotte's web, even. <laughs> I know everyone t says that I should write a book, Grant. That would be a risk. Gosh. Yeah. Um, you are on the it, show. The show, name of our show is Right Minded, by the way. I know. <laughs> I mean, I have a couple ideas, actually. You know, when I was at 10 Speed Press, I loved um, working at that company. They're now, they're just a great company. They're now bought by Random House, but 10 Speed um, was such a fun Berkeley, Philwood owned it, Lorena Jones. She's fantastic. And there was a moment we were in a boardroom and I have a really interesting history. My, my one side of my family, my, my grandparents are Holocaust survivors. My other side of my family, my grandmother was born in Italy. The greatest connection of Roman Catholic and Jews meeting in New York is my parents and me. <laughs> and uh, how we lived is my grandmother, my Italian grandmother, born in Italy, lived with us in the basement. Imagine that with rosaries and lots of pictures of, of Mary and um, would cook these incredible meals. And then there was my Israeli mother and then a New York mother who would. So dinners would be matzo ball soup, hummus, as well as like spaghetti and meatballs all on the same table. And so Grant, my risk when I was at 10 speed was like, how could I ever write that? And they were like that you do need to write uh, your story and your, and Brooke, that's like the magic that you do are these like memoirs and these stories and these things out of them. So maybe you guys are starting what risk I should be taking is if I wrote my own book, you want to know what really scares me about the risk is the financial risk grant. Actually, it's like, wow, what I would want to do with my own work, like who I'd want to hire, who I want. Those are big risks. So that, that gets me thinking about um, even running a publishing company. If it was my own work that I was working on, I'd still want to set a pretty large, robust budget for myself. And that would be a big risk. I, I, I also think I want to take on more in-house projects, which means that I have to own that financial risk. And that I'm doing already. I have a book coming out in the fall, a children's book, where I'm taking the financial risk on it. And I'm thinking about doing that at least one book per season where I take on the full financial risk. So I am much more a partnership or independent traditional publisher in that way. Um, but I uh, have to fuel my list, right, for these partner projects too, which we didn't really talk about is how do we, I, if, the, if this show is about risk, you take a risk, like you go, okay, this is the one part I'm going to throw all my bas my eggs in this basket. I'm going to publish this more traditionally. But then I have all of this other, pro all these other projects I am working on to diversify my income so to mitigate that one risk. Does that make sense, Brent? 
Yes. And it's a, it's a great note to end on. I, I think it's like, <laughs> what I love is that we're bringing all the elements of publishing together, right? I mean, it's like, there's the business and there's the money and there's the product and there's what it's going to look like. And, you know, authors have to be thinking this way too. So many of the people that are listening are going to end up in some way, shape or form self-financing. So um, great show, Angela. Thank you. You're awesome. Well, now I might be writing my spaghetti and meatball Italian Jewish recipe cookbook for 2024, Grant. I don't know. I'm Go for it. My Go risk. for it. Because I'm yes. saying I'm going to finance one author. Maybe it should be me. There you go. There you go. Yep, you've got it. You've got it, girl. Thanks again, Angela. Thank you, guys. Thank you. We will be right back with today's book trend. Today's book trend is a bright shining light for people who love print sales because it's about the fact that print books had a huge sales year in 2021. So I thought that that would just be a fun thing for people to hear because oftentimes you hear the opposite, you know, and people have been bemoaning the death of print for so long. And Publishers Weekly published the story earlier this year, letting us know that, you know, they were wrong and this was one of the strongest years ever. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And what I, what I found fascinating about the article were the numbers the main category that was up in 2021 get ready for this it was fiction which is just just totally <laughs> wild uh, and and wonderful but perhaps not surprising during these pandemic times you know that folks are looking for escape as we've talked about in some previous episodes uh, just to give the numbers unit sales of print books rose nearly nine percent in 2021 over 2020 reported units sold were 825.7 million books in 2021 up from 757.9 million in 2020 and that's capturing uh just retail sales so those are some but those are some pretty big numbers to wrap our minds around yeah, they sure are. You know, honestly, the sheer magnitude of those kinds of numbers both excites me and overwhelms me. Uh, I'm not surprised that fiction got all the love last year. Um, but I do want to call out, too, that the biggest growth categories in that space were actually young adult and graphic novels. Hmm. I think we can for sure conclude that the pandemic was driving a lot of parents to buy books for their kids. And I certainly know I did. Yeah, I suppose that's true. Although I, I, I do wonder if all those books were for kids because I, I, I've read that adults buy more YA books than teens. Mm. And um, I'm not sure if that's true for graphic novels, but, I'm, but I happen to be the graphic novel fan in my family. Um, in fact, I've been known to buy my kids graphic novels as gifts just so I could read them. Uh, <laughs> so that's the kind of giver I am. <laughs> Beware. But you know, Brooke, I'm, I'm happy that print sales are up because I'm old enough to remember how afraid certain segments of the book industry were when ebooks came out and were, you know, ebooks were super scary and people thought print would die and ebooks were, you know, going up and up every year until they, they plateaued. And um, now I think the new ebook is, is audiobooks uh, because we've been hearing that they're the biggest growth segment of the industry. And I wanted to get your perspective on that. Yeah, they are. I think the biggest growth segment in the terms that year over year, there's more audiobook growth than print growth, right? In terms of volume, like audiobooks against audiobooks, but definitely not in terms of sales because there's just simply not as many audiobooks as there are print books. Mm -hmm. And I did look up a Pew Research Center uh, study released last month, actually, that said that audiobook listenership was up 7% over last year. So that is also very robust 
growth, but you said the numbers for print, it was 9%. So interestingly, I mean, it's up everywhere and that's really good growth, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I also think the issue is that audiobooks are relatively expensive. And as I said before, you know, not all titles go into audio because they're also expensive to produce. Yeah, all interesting and fortunately a positive thing for the book world as we head into the third year of this pandemic. Mm-hmm. If, if, if I'll say if one of the silver linings is that more people are reading books, then I'm going to embrace that. Yeah, I embrace it too. Yeah. Well, speaking of the pandemic, we're going to be here every week through rain, shine, and Omicron, I hope. Uh, So please keep listening, keep writing, keep telling stories, and keep telling your writing crowd to listen along with us and write along with you. 